Listeners, it's Sam here again, and just the usual shout out for our brilliant sponsors before this week's show. Paces Ahead have courses for the start of 2024, and listeners, here's a possible sweetener for you. I will be there at their first course of 2024. That's the 16th to the 19th of January. Please do come along and say hi if you catch me. It would be great to meet some of you if you're there. But there is also a course the following week from the 20th to the 23rd of January for those of you sitting in the first diet of 2024. Not only that, but they also have courses lined up for May as well. The 20th to the 23rd of May and the 28th to the 31st of May. I highly recommend booking on early to avoid disappointment. They very regularly get oversubscribed. If you can't make a course though, past tests have got you covered with their market-leading online revision paces resource. I think most pacer sitters would agree this is more or less essential to have to complement your ward-based preparation. So to get access, just click any of the links in the show notes labelled past test. But enough on that for now, let's get started on this week's episode. Welcome listeners, it's Dr. Sam Williams here and it's that festive time of year again as 2023 winds its way to a merry end. It's our opportunity to look back at some of the highlights from the year gone by. We have had some truly brilliant guests this year who have been generous enough to give up some of their time all with the aim of helping you pass your paces but also prepare you for those med red shifts where you might be the most senior medic in the hospital overnight or might just give you some valuable learning for your clinical practice. But as we approach the festive season, it's time for me to say thank you. From the bottom of my heart, thank you to you for listening to the podcast. Thank you if you've listened before. And a special thank you if you've supported the show by either leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts or even donating to the show via the Buy Me A Coffee page. And very recently, the Buy Me A Coffee page was absolutely on fire. I can only assume it was results day because so many of you were so generous. I was absolutely overwhelmed by the support on the show. I'm actually going to divide the name groups into two. Otherwise, it's going to take up too much time in this intro. So if you donated and you don't hear your name, you'll definitely hear it in one of the other festive episodes. So a huge thank you to Fliss, who listened on her drive to work, and to Claire, who donated after driving up to her exam. Thank you to Quiver, not only for your donation, but making sure to include the correct pronunciation so I didn't butcher it as I'm prone to doing. Huge congratulations to one of my current colleagues, Marisa, who passed. We had chatted at work about her mixed feelings after the exam, so absolutely delighted for Marisa on her pass. Thank you to Jack, an ONG trainee. Jack, you're absolutely mad. Why would you put yourself through paces as an ONG trainee? Heaven only knows, and that is definitely worth a site liaison referral at the very least. Lastly, thank you to Jackie, who got your pass third time after listening on the commute. Congratulations, Jackie. Third time's a charm. I'm so delighted for you. As I said, if you donated but didn't hear your name, I'll be giving you a shout out on one of the other festive episodes. It really does make a huge difference when I'm writing episodes, recording, editing, emailing potential guests during my evenings, weekends and days off to know that I'm making a small difference to you guys, to know that you value it. That only leaves me to say, look after yourselves and each other this Christmas and New Year. I hope you make the most of any time you have off. A huge thank you to those of you who are covering the hospital during the bank holidays, keeping the rest of the hospital safe. I really do wish you all a very restful, festive season. 
But for now, let's get into our best bits of 2023. Kicking off the year in style, our first highlight of 2023, we have to turn to someone who provided nearly four hours of incredible knowledge this year to the podcast. Dr. Paul Sellers is a consultant stroke physician at Southmead Hospital in Bristol and spoke to me in a first episode on hemiparesis and how to approach this in the context of PACES. Paul's best tips in this episode came when he described how important the end of the bedogram can be in identifying the patient presenting with hemiparesis in a PACES station. And so we always start our examination stations by our first impressions of the patient, so our end of the bed examination. So Paul, when we come to these patients, what are we most likely to see from the end of the bed on a gross general inspection? So I guess when you're coming into paces with with the sort of weaknesses, weakness can be caused by such a multitude of things, but the inspection is really your money shot. This is where you're going to diagnose stroke because you're going to be asked whether you're wanting to examine the upper limb or the lower limb quite often or cranial nerves. So you're you're probably going to be led in fairly heavily to what you're examining. The only way you're going to be able to do well in this station is the observation bit. And that's that's true for a lot of the paces cases, but you know it's 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 so important and taking your time and trying to calm those nerves and just looking and examining and, and also trying to get some cheeky little clues is going to be what makes or breaks your station here. So I guess with stroke, what we're really looking for, so the main thing you want to be looking for is someone, if you've got a lead in of weakness, usually stroke comes in in sort of patterns. And we've got posterior strokes, which I'm not going to go into too heavily at the moment because they're a bit more complicated. But if we talk about the main common ones, either talking about the Kuna strokes where they're going to be weak in face, arm and leg, or they're going to have a tax or pax where usually it groups into face and arm or leg. And if you can bring out a hemiparesis that is associated with facial weakness, you know instantly it's not the spine. So you're you're instantly led to cranial causes. And if you can localize that in any way, and certainly if you can try and tease out any cortical signs, and by that I mean sort of any aphasias or, or neglect, there is really nothing else in paces that they're likely to bring in. So it's it's all about that sort of narrowing down. And, and with paces, as you go through your examination, really that is the main crux of what you're doing is trying to narrow it down to something that's very wide into your finer diagnosis. And I would say for stroke, you're not going to do that in your general neurological examination because all you're going to pick up is an upper motor neuron lesion. So it's all going to be in that inspection. And if you can get face and arm, you're pretty much sorted, I'd say. You've got it there. It's a brain lesion that's chronic that's been brought into paces. It's probably going to be something like a stroke or a space-occupying lesion. So I guess that's my main tip is look at how they are. So what you're really going to be looking for is they'll they'll have a face, which will be an upper motor neuron, so it will mainly be affecting the lower part of the face. If they've got limb involvement, especially upper limb, it's likely to be flexed. Wrists going to be flexed. Their hands, their fingers are going to be flexed. Or it may be, especially if it's an acute patient, they may be sort of out 
and extend it because we're trying to avoid that flexor, flexor posturing so that it may be completely flaccid paresis and out and, and extended. So don't, just because it's extended doesn't mean it's not a stroke and a promoter neurone. That may be a positioning thing. Also, you may want to look along that level is often, especially if they've been brought in for a ward or they've had a very severe stroke, often we're putting on splints to try and break that flexure posturing. So you may see what almost looks like, a, it almost looks like sort of a big plastic mold that sits over the palm up to the wrist and has sort of straps over it to try and keep that wrist in extensor posturing. That splint may also be on the table, so making sure that you're looking around to see those splints. And similarly for the leg, which would typically be an extensor posturing, you're looking to see if we've got any orthosis or what, what look like big boots, like big moon boots, but without all the foam from the 80s. I don't know if you're familiar with the, the, the moon boots, but they're, they're there to try and keep it flexed. The other things that you may want to look at is walking aids and things. They may not help you to the exact diagnosis, but are important to your sort of presentation and what you might say about function. And I guess if you're really looking for those sort of higher points is trying to think about the sort of patients that get brought in. I know from medical student teaching, we bring in a chap again and again who's had a hemicraniectomy and things like that is looking at just examining the the head, the skull, to see if they have a bit of skull missing and seeing if if they're undressed in their abdomen, they may have a bit of skull in their abdomen from hemicraniectomy. Looking again for the, I doubt they would bring in someone with an NG tube, but it's possible, but they very well may have a peg tube. So again, it's just trying to expose that sort of bit of the tummy where the tube's sticking out. And again, you may, you may see that. And I guess the other thing is trying to get those cheeky marks. So if you can approach the patient from the left and shake their hands, introduce yourself and get them to introduce you to you, you've then managed to get some speech and you've also tested for neglect or severe neglect on the left. So whilst in paces, you would obviously examine from the right while you're inspecting and looking round, you may want to introduce yourself from the left and you've just, because left weakness is usually associated with neglect, right weakness is usually associated with speech. You can just get those little cheeky bits because you're not going to have a lot of time. If you can get those bits, you've taken away all the other weird, the other upper motor neurone sort of differentials. So MS is unlikely to cause neglect or aphasia, although it can, it's, it's less likely. So if you can pick up aphasia from introduction or you're approaching from the left and they actually ignore you and you have to walk around to the right, you've, you've got it. This is definitely a stroke and you're, you're there, you're plain sailing then. Our highlights from Paul don't end there. In the second part of this double header, Paul goes into how to assess cognitive function in a patient presenting with stroke-like symptoms. Now, before Paul ran us through this, this was something I really didn't appreciate the importance of when we see these patients out of hours during stroke calls. And I've genuinely used the advice he gives in this clip in my day-to-day practice. Either way, this is still very relevant to paces. So listen to Paul's advice for assessing cognitive function of these patients. As, as an additional bit, and this is where we come to a bit of clinical crossover, because this is something which you're probably unlikely to have time to do uh, through the course of a conventional neurological examination. But 
um, examination of cortical function in patients with stroke is really important. So, Paul, I wonder if you can just run through what sort of elements of cortical function are important for us to examine uh, in our patients in, in our day to day clinical practice. So it's yeah, it's I mean, it's tricky, isn't it? Because you you may not get time. But like I said at the beginning, see if you can get some freebies with the the neglect, the speech, even uh, testing sort of heavy and open if they're, if they're not sort of clearly acknowledging one side. So sometimes neglect is very obvious. And sometimes they've literally got their head turned over to the right and not really acknowledging the left at all. And I think that is worth remarking on. You probably won't have time. But if you do, I guess it's about trying to get the biggest bang for your buck. So making sure that in this order, so if they have right-sided weakness, you're examining speech next. If they got left-sided weakness, you're examining neglect next, and then do fields. And I think it's about just trying to do that. So in terms of speech, you just want them to either name something, or you can just ask them for some fluent speech like what they've had for breakfast or something like that. You're just trying to get some some speech and some very classic aphasia symptoms of things like uh, phonemic substitutions and semantic substitutions. That's where either sound-alike words are being used or words that have a similar meaning, so using table rather than chair or something that sounds similar. And if you pick those up, then you know it's definitely not confusion. It's definitely aphasias that you're seeing. In terms of neglect, what you're trying to uh, trying to demonstrate, so there's lots of different tests we can use for neglect. We've got lines that you can draw and star charts that you start marking and all kinds of things. Sometimes it's really obvious, but the main sort of confrontation tests are checking fields. So can you see my left finger? Can you see my right finger? Yes, yes. Then wiggle both of them and someone with neglect would just see your right finger. Same with sensation. Can you feel my left? Can you feel my right? Both together they'll only feel the right side. So that's how you would test it in a quick clinical or certainly how we would do it in, in the sort of an IHSS scoring. So that's your sort of quick test for it. But just being aware there are other tests. So there's a line drawing where you try and mark the middle. And if you've got neglect, you'll be nowhere near the middle. You'll be right over the right side. There's star crossing where you've got to cross out all the different stars. And if you have neglect, you'll just ignore all the ones on the, uh, on the left side. Um, and then, or one one of the other ones is drawing a clock face, I think, and they'll yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, it's, neglect is an absolutely fascinating problem, and it, it really is. It's so hard. Some people don't even realise they've they've got hemiparesis, and they think they can just walk. They just do not appreciate that that side. It is it is a especially when we're coming to sort of rehab and the practical implications of that sign, it, it becomes really challenging. But yes, there are lots of different tests that you can use. And I think it's just being aware of some of them. But if you've really got that last 30 seconds before the clocks run out, is just going for the one that you can say, this is definitely cortical. And as soon as you've picked up that cortical sign, all the other sort of differentials like MS start to become a lot less likely. And you've almost, you, you know, you've got it on the nail on the head then. Our next 2023 highlight comes from one of my absolute favourite guests. He is an MBE, RCP, London Elected Councillor and Paces Examiner, Dr. Aranthakrishnan Ragwam, affectionately known as Ragu, spoke to us on lung surgery. And this highlight was so valuable as Ragu gave us the best advice when approaching the examination of a patient with previous lung surgery. And here Ragu talks through the different types of scar you might see when examining patients in a lung surgery station. 
absolutely agree with everything you've said so far. And, and I guess the thing with particularly left-sided scars is you really have to make sure that you are examining the left side of the chest, particularly because you'll be expected to approach the patient from their right side. And you can very easily miss those left-sided posterolateral thoracotomy scars if they are subtle or they just miss your eye line. So I think that's one thing. I think we've we've picked it up on the podcast before, particularly talking about um, left-sided nephrectomies, which is obviously in a similar sort of location. But absolutely agree. Just absolutely need to be really, really sure that we are just inspecting because missing it will potentially absolutely sabotage your station. You do have another opportunity to come back to it during examination. So this is your first trial at it. So I'll look for other things. So you've now come to the chest. You're now looking at the chest. So come back to what you've done at inspection from the bedside to have another look at the trachea, make sure that you've demonstrated you've done that, make sure that you've looked for any any other uh, marks on the chest, tattoo, radio, radiotherapy tattoos and, and co. So let's go through scars now, because that's what the, this particular podcast is about. So where do you think the scars could be? Mostly it's posterolateral, and that's what you'd be looking for. You can occasionally get it right in the center. Uh, you can get natural thoracotomy. Rare, but can happen. And of course, uh, if you're really lucky, you can get the clamshell thoracotomy, and then you know where you're going with this without any trouble, because the only reason why they do something like that would be if you've got a lung transplant. A few other indications, but that, by and large, in your exam, that's what's going to come. You get that, you know what you're going to do, and you start thinking about other things. So that's about scars. There are a few other scars that might be there. The patient may have had a CABG. The patient may have had some cardiac surgery. They may have had some valve repair, something else incidental that may be there. So don't try and fit everything to what your diagnosis is. Just make sure that you've demonstrated it and offer a differential at the time. I have had a patient who had something that's completely wrong in the exam. The candidate saw the scar and they went away far away from that and actually all that scar was was some skin tumor that, <laughs> that the surgeon had a rep- the surgery had repaired and and they went off down uh, a rabbit hole that they couldn't come out of so that's about scars and what to find both examiners independently will calibrate for findings so if it's very subtle chances are they will give you the benefit of the doubt but that's no excuse try and make sure that you've seen most of them. And I think one thing which has come up, well, both in my exams and also colleagues, is is VAT scars, video-assisted thoracoscopy or thoracostomy scars. They can be very subtle. And I, I guess the question I would like to ask is, where would you typically look? And, and is there any way of uh, differentiating a VATS scars, which of course we know is minimally invasive surgery, compared to other, I mean, I'm just thinking, for example, something like you've said, like a, a skin lesion or, or something like that. I think it's difficult to spot. It's usually laterally. And make sure that you've picked it up and say that this could be from a previous procedure. And leave it at that. And then they might ask you, what could it be? And then you can offer your differential. If you commit to something, make sure that it is absolutely right. 
And different examiners would react with this differently. So you're trying to prepare yourself. So what you say is take the obvious facts, take what you think is likely to be, and then wait. Chances are the examiners will fill that gap. If you start talking and go down one route that you've absolutely determined is what it is, some examiners might just sit back and watch. So I, my recommendation is stick to what you found. Offer some differential and stop. They will come back with a supplemental question which will direct you to get you because the examiners are out there to find out what you know. They're not really there to find out the depth of your ignorance. And we certainly don't want more reasons to expose that if, we are, if we're not confident on the diagnosis. Now, this next episode was one of my favourites of the year. Dr. Andy Fu, consultant in intensive care and anaesthesia, was next up, joining me to discuss calling intensive care and how we, as medical registrars or anyone working on the medical take, can make our conversations with the critical care team more effective when making referrals. In this clip, Andy gives some fantastic advice which I still apply in my day-to-day practice and makes my conversations with ICU so much easier. So have a listen to Andy's great advice here on calling ICU. And so moving on to what I will call the meat and the sandwich of this episode and hopefully will be most valuable to our listeners is, is as a junior medical red, you're going to be looking after some of the sickest patients in the hospital, and we're going to try and help you make these uh, make these referrals to intensive care as efficient and effective as as possible, and and hopefully give you some insight into into how you can improve these processes to make sure you you do the best for your patient. And so, Andy, to start off, a, a lot of medical trainees are apprehensive about calling critical care about unwell patients. So, from your perspective as a critical care team, what makes these conversations or referrals easier for the ITU team? First, I would like to say is that in intensive care, we want to hear about these patients and we want to have these referrals because I, I do appreciate that some people go, "Oh, I'm not quite sure if I should disturb intensive care." But from from my perspective uh, and from my speciality, that's the bread and butter of what we do. And so therefore, um, getting these referrals and hearing about these patients is what we want. Um, the, the key things that would, that would make those conversations easier would be to um, have uh, a good knowledge of the patient, good knowledge of not just the acute pathology, but also the backgrounds, the comorbidities and various things. But I do appreciate that sometimes time does not you allow you to have, um, have all of that. And um, to be clear as to what you are asking from us. Um, so to get it clear in your mind as to, is it, is it advice that you want? Is it, is it a review and you want intensive care to come and see the patient? Or do you think this patient needs intensive care admission and that you're worried that this patient is critically unwell and, uh, and you need an urgent referral? And so I think with that, if you declare that right from the beginning, then it just makes things flow a lot easier in terms of from a, from from my point of view or my team's point of view is and then we we kind of like can or turn our brain into what is needed uh, or how we can serve you better in terms of now that we know what you want i'm quite a, a simple person and i've got kind of a, a simple brain and so so i often um talk about patients from an a b c d e point of view and if you um and if you talk to any intensivist in that structural format then you can't go much wrong, really. I think that um, the other 
universal language that um, can should um, should be understood by all is the the news two scoring system and where patients are uh, triggering uh, and that allows people to kind of immediately understand which organs are are failing the things that have a consequence in terms of uh, admission to ITU or something that we can uh, help with is understanding what the reversibility is of that pathology. So what we don't want to do is admit patients to intensive care where, when we can't make them better, where we can't reverse that, that problem, that pathology, uh, because there's no point. All the machines in the world that support organs from ventilators to uh, inotropes or, or hemofiltration, that is not going to make the patient better. All those machines do is provide time. It gives that patient time. Um, and it's the um, uh, the uh, acute pathology and the reversibility of that pathology is what's going to make that patient better. And so understanding what it is that, that can be treated will then give us an indication that, okay, this patient has a possibility to survive from this. There is a reversibility and therefore um, uh, admission to ITU will be logical. And then with that, uh, once you've gone through the, 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 the different systems, we've got an understanding of the pathology, then the next thing we'd probably want to know is the rate of deterioration or the, the trajectory of the patient. So if the patient says, oh, sorry, if the patient says, if, the, <laughs> if you say that uh, they've been scoring a news of eight for the last four days and, and they've just... Uh, and their oxygen requirements have gone up from 40% to 45% or so, and um, you're contacting us, then um, one is that we're glad that you're contacting us, but uh, with that rate of deterioration, it's only quite mild. And therefore, um, we would probably think that the urgency of admission may not be as quick versus someone who has deteriorated over the course of a couple of hours or so. And to be able to recognize and declare that that this patient is getting um, uh, deteriorating very quickly and that, that we need to act quickly to, to try and support them. So kind of understanding, um, I suppose what I'm trying to say is understanding the time frame that you want us to react in, in, in a way. And then I suppose um, the, the final thing then is if there has been opportunity to work it out is what, what the patient wants and the family wants, which would bring us on to um, respect uh, understanding patient values and fears and to be able to then marry that up with potential treatments. Yeah. And I think just taking one step back, the really important thing, which I've always found when I was both taking these referrals as an SHO working in, in your critical care, Andy, as well as now making these referrals to critical care is what help do we need from you? This is something which you can assimilate during your time in critical care is the referral asking for respiratory support for maximal oxygen therapy? Is it someone who'd be suitable for invasive intubation? Are you asking for renal support for someone who needs hemofiltration? Are you asking for blood pressure support? Or is it something else completely such as airway protection or even something such as management of abnormal or agitated behavior? So just knowing the types of patients that come through the critical care department on a, on a regular basis you'll realize which of those you're asking the ICU team to help with. And as exactly as you said, Andy, the reversibility factor is when things get slightly complicated and you need to have a think about, well, are we treating something uh, which if admission, if they're admitted to critical care, we will be actually be able to reverse this pathology. 
I also um, appreciate that um, when a patient gets referred, that you may not have all this information. That uh, I completely appreciate the fact that we as clinicians work in a time-limited environment with limited information, high risk, and that we don't know all the answers and we may not get it right all the time. That is absolutely normal. And therefore, and that's absolutely the same for me. I, I, there, will, there will be scenarios where I've made decisions in terms of admission or not for admission, which may or may not be right. I am not, it's, it's, it's not crystal clear. And so therefore, um, I recommend to your listeners to, to be clear in your mind in terms of um, knowing this patient, but don't be afraid to disagree with the intensive care teams and to, um, to discuss your case and to have the opportunity to explain why you think what you think, because it's not an exact science and we are limited with information. And if we are unsure, then we err on the side of, potent, uh, of admission until proven otherwise, until we can gather that information, which putting patients on machines will give the time to be able to work it out. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing to mention as well, I guess, is you mentioned about the urgency of the referral, which crudely in my head, you could almost treat it as a, as a, almost a green, amber, red style of referral, where the red is, I need you to come right now, this patient's peri-arrest. Amber is, they're really sick and they may need admission, versus green, where they have potential to deteriorate, but maybe they don't have a critical care requirement right now. Yeah, we could do that. We did try that, <laughs> but it didn't. One of my colleagues said, wait a sec, use red for um, you need them to act straight away. Doesn't red mean stop? <laughs> and so um, I th so therefore, we kind of went with the idea of, in my mind, I've kind of clarified it as you see a patient and they need to come now. Uh, I don't care if there's a bed available. I don't care if there's a nurse available. We're coming now and we're crashing through the doors. Um, then there is the patient that you need to admit over the course of 30 minutes to an hour and it gives you the opportunity to prepare the bed space and to sort a few things out and then there's the final patient where they do need to come but they are stable but very much deteriorating and that they should come over the next couple of hours depending on various other things as well but I do think stating a time frame puts everyone on the same page what you don't want is to go, yeah, I think this patient needs to be admitted. And everyone goes, okay, then I'll come and review them in, an, in a couple of hours when they need to be admitted now kind of thing. It's just getting everyone on that same page and declaring this is an emergency and I need you, I need you to come now. Next up. I finally got to scratch my rheumatological itch in this bumper episode on rheumatoid arthritis with consultant rheumatologist Dr. Ariane Laws. In this part, Ariane talks us through the multi-systemic aspect of rheumatoid arthritis and the extra-articular manifestations which might either support a diagnosis of rheumatoid or make you think of an alternative diagnosis. And then as we've approached our history focusing on the joint pain, we'll need to think about the multi-systemic effect of rheumatoid and the extra-articular manifestations of rheumatoid. Once we've established the, the history of, of joint pain, 
So what are the types of uh, associated symptoms which patients can report in a patient presenting with joint pain, which might make you think, is this an extra articular manifestation of rheumatoid or actually is this pointing away from rheumatoid and maybe at one of our differential diagnoses? Yeah, so I mean, as part of your examination later on, you'll be looking for this as well, but I do always ask them, do they have psoriasis? Is there a first degree relative with psoriasis as well? Or have they noticed like a flaky scalp? Because it wouldn't be the first patient who hasn't been aware that actually they had psoriasis, but they've just always had this funny rash on their forehead. Have there been any changes in bowel habit to suggest something like an inflammatory bowel disease associated with enteropathic arthritis? Have there been any eye symptoms suggestive of anterior uveitis? Or I guess the other thing would be much less commonly seen now but scleritis so painful acutely painful usually just one eye have they had any breathlessness again usually a sort of later sign you talked about sort of interstitial lung disease have they had a dry cough have they been tired are they more breathless and yeah the sort of um the can't see can't pee and can't climb a tree of reactive arthritis like have they got joint pain associated with dysuria and um again anterior uveitis or not the first time I've seen somebody with polyarticular gout presenting as um, rheumatoid and whether or not you know, have you got a history of gout have they got these sort of funny lumps that have appeared over the sort of usually extensive surfaces tops of ears that are tofi kind of thing so people sometimes have even say yeah no I've got this lump on my finger here that just started oozing this creamy coloured weird stuff coming out of it and actually like if they say that then you're thinking that's a tophus that's burst kind of thing so that would be the sort of kind of things I'd be asking to tease out the sort of other bits as well as sort of family history just in case. Yeah fantastic and just going back briefly to the distribution of symptoms and and joints affected how does the uh, variability of joint distribution narrow down into where you're thinking of in terms of a dis- differential diagnosis? Because I think there is a, a typical presentation of these conditions, and I know it's we're trying to make a, a grey picture into black and white, and it doesn't always present that way, but there are typical presentations of these various uh, arthritides. So I wonder if you can just talk us through how these psoriatic arthritis patients or these enteropathic uh, arthritis patients, uh, how they typically present. Yeah, so um, I've already said that rheumatoid arthritis, and particularly the patients that you'll see in exams, it's likely to be a small joint symmetrical polyarthritis, particularly in the hands affecting the MCP and PIP joints. Psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis is a great mimic. So it can look like seven different things. So sometimes you have patients who do have a symmetrical small joint polyarthritis, but actually often the thing that will help you differentiate is that it's affecting the DIP joints more so than the PIP joints, but also the MCP joints and it can be symmetrical like that. You can get the sort of obliterans sort of appearance where people are getting telescoping of fingers very quickly early onset. Sometimes patients with psoriatic arthritis present with a monoarthritis, so often a large joint like a knee or an ankle. Um, And the other thing is the sort of um, asymmetrical um, larger joint oligoarthritis and that's kind of what the sort of seronegative arthritides will present as is the sort of either monoarthritis or 
asymmetrical um, oligoarthritis in larger joints usually. Yeah, fantastic. And I, and I guess the important thing for our listeners, and I tried to allude to it before, is that there is a typical presentation, but not everything presents typically. So it's important to have an open mind and always consider that not everything presents typically, but there are characteristic presenting patterns and it's important to try and clearly differentiate and that will at least demonstrate to your examiner that you have a knowledge of how these uh, seronegative arthritides present. My next highlight comes from Dr. Beth Malam, consultant neurologist and subspecialist in functional neurology. And again, this is something that comes up so often, either when covering the wards as the medical reg or on the medical take or even attending crash calls. And that is the appropriate management of patients with suspected functional seizures or non-epileptic attacks. Beth does some myth busting in this clip in terms of features which would make you either confirm a suspicion of functional seizures or otherwise. I love Beth's compassionate approach to these patients and this has already come in handy during my own on-calls. So I really encourage you to dial into this clip so you know how to manage them in your own practice. So I think what you had mentioned before, the functional seizures or non-epileptic attacks, there are definitely features I'm thinking more in the examination but again they would come out in in the history so an interesting thing to ask about I think with functional seizures is about whether they lose consciousness so obviously with an epileptic attack in general they do uh, if you're thinking if it, if it looks outwardly like a generalized seizure with somebody with a functional seizure, they, if you say, do you lose consciousness, they might say yes, and you might move on and go, oh, it might be epilepsy. Um, but often um, people interpret that as, did you lose control? So um, if you ask them, could you hear, could you feel, if your eyes were open, could you see during this episode where you lost consciousness, they say yes, then that's not the kind of consciousness that you lose when you have an epileptic attack. They are still awake. Um, they might dissociate. So another term, there's so many terms for functional seizures, but another term is dissociative seizures. I don't use that term so much because not everybody experiences dissociation. So this is that spaced out feeling, feeling apart from the world, depersonalization, derealization, the world not feeling quite right around you, feeling detached from things. Um, people sometimes experience that, but sometimes they just are not in control of what's happening either their body's not moving at all or it's moving and they can't do anything but I think it's really interesting if you ask them can you see or hear during the episode and they say yes and I think it's really important to remember that when you're examining them because certainly when I was training you were taught to be horrible to people with functional seizures you were taught to try and jolt them out of it so lift up their hand and drop it over their face and somebody with an epileptic seizure will, you know, somebody with a functional seizure will move it away from their face on the, on the way down. Um, do a sternal rub to try and, you know, get them to snap out of it. Nail bed, pinch it. You're not even allowed to do this for um, assessing uh, GCS, are you? And putting a tuning fork, that was a favourite for some of the old tuning fork, just gently on the nasal hair. So it's really difficult to not uh, to resist sort of rubbing your nose. So all horrible. And actually, the patients are awake. 
they are in a distressed state. So if you're annoyed or want them to stop, then you need to be kind to them. So actually sort of, you know, getting close to them, being reassuring is much more likely to settle the seizure uh, than being horrible to somebody. And another feature of functional seizures might be that there's a sort of whack-a-mole effect so if you hold on to one limb that's shaking, it will often settle and the shaking might move to another limb. So you wouldn't get that with an epileptic seizure, but you do get that with functional seizures. And it's a nice thing to do to just lay your hand on somebody and make reassuring sounds and talk about, you know, if, if you know, maybe talk about them getting back in control and that this is, this is going to settle down, that we're in a safe place, things like that. Much more likely to settle. And if they do settle with your nice noises and your... Uh, comforting touch then um, again that's much more likely to be a non-epileptic attack and so is diagnostically helpful this is absolutely brilliant for people like me acting as the medical reg on call because i mean we we have moved into the next part of the question where i was going to talk about nead non-epileptic attack disorder and i i posed the sort of problem at the start of the episode where you're on call you get a double two, double two to a patient with some of the comorbidities we mentioned earlier, maybe being mm. worked up with a suspicion for functional uh, neurological disorder or non-epileptic attacks. And, and you're asked to see this patient. And one of the problems that we find, certainly I found, is resisting the urge to give these people benzodiazepines, to give them lorazepam, diazepam, etc. And so the signs you've just discussed, I really hope will help our listeners to identify these patients and actually probably prevent the administration of inappropriate uh, benzodiazepines. And so you've mentioned a couple of the things that I uh, had found during my brief bit of research. And I wonder if maybe you can determine if some of the other things I found are consistent, not consistent. You could do some maybe myth busting for us with some of these other things. So uh, we've mentioned a couple of things, responding to eye contact, exploring the room visually, that sort of signifies that they maybe haven't lost consciousness in the way that we might expect of an epileptic seizure. Eye closure with resistance to uh, opening them. Is that a, a positive sign for in, in favour of FND rather than epilepsy? Yeah, it is. And there's, there's, a, I don't know whether it's okay to quote papers, but there's, and, and again, it's the, um, uh, the first guy I mentioned, Storin Popkroff, the German neurologist, has just won the, an essay prize in Brain, the sort of most prestigious neurology journal, and for an essay on FND. And it's a really nice, easy paper to read, uh, essay to read, you know, sit down with a cup of tea, it take you five minutes kind of thing. And one point that he makes that I think is really interesting is that if you were to show a video or to take somebody who's not medically trained into a room with somebody having an, a non-epileptic attack, they would immediately recognise that this person's in distress, got their eyes tightly closed, don't want to be in whatever they're experiencing um, and, and, and look to be very distressed. Whereas we're, the way that we're taught in medical school is we become a little bit more critical and we we lose that sort of personal contact and, and that ability to empathise with what a patient might be experiencing and so we go over and try and force their eyes open and you know I think it's reasonable to try and open somebody's eyes just to sort of get an understanding there but I think I think it is interesting that we're trained out of that natural empathy for for people who are clearly distressed uh, so it's worth taking a step back and I always would say that if somebody's having seizures at nighttime and you're not sure whether it's non-epileptic or epileptic, 
particularly as an SHO and I appreciate this more sort of registrar level but it's a really stressful situation to be in and really it's the responsibility of the day team the neurologists who are on in the day to be making the distinction for you so that you know what to do and to give you a clear description of what their epileptic seizures are like and what their non-epileptic seizures are like if they're experiencing both and so at night time you know a small amount of benzos uh won't cause harm but obviously on a repeated basis it's not the right treatment for functional seizures at high levels um, it can be risky and there are people who ex have experienced functional seizures very rarely you know there's always a story but there are people who have died who only have a diagnosis of functional seizures because they've been over sedated but you're not going to do that when you're um, on call at night time but really so so try and use you know the characteristic features to to make the diagnosis so that's a tight eyes tightly closed it's a back arching, pelvic thrusting, head moving from side to side, that whack-a-mole kind of appearance, appearance, sometimes crying, although you can get that as well with some kinds of epileptic seizures, um, and a sort of quick, relatively quick recovery afterwards. Uh, the duration, epileptic seizures are just minutes long unless they're going in status, but um, functional seizures can wax and wane over over sort of five, ten minutes or even longer. So, that, so you can look for those characteristics, but I would, again, take the pressure off yourself at night time, do whatever you and the patient need to do to get through the night uh, and just be kind to them. And I think being kind, uh, not necessarily with medications, I think you're, you're more likely to be successful and and then at the handover the neurologists need to come and they need to give clearer indication of how to distinguish those seizures for you and my final highlight of this part one of Best Bits of 2023 comes from Dr Sajini Widjatelika consultant in acute medicine as well as endocrine and diabetes who talks us through Cushing's syndrome and this clip is perfect for your patient's preparation where Sajini talks us through clarifying exogenous versus endogenous Cushing's. And so one thing you mentioned is distinguishing between pituitary Cushing's and non-pituitary Cushing's. So I wonder if we can just take a moment to go through some of the basics and talk about exogenous versus endogenous Cushing's and the differences between them. So I wonder if we can start off uh, talking about exogenous Cushing's. So what do we mean when we talk about exogenous steroid versus endogenous? So exogenous causes are due to when the patient has ingested a glucocorticoid, be it, you know, an injectable, um, be it prednisolone tablets, um, hydrocortisone or dexamethasone for a chronic disease. The disease is often autoimmune or inflammatory. And uh, that's what you have to think about. So very often in a patient station five, we cook this up with the rheumatoid patient, somebody with very bad asthma that's needed multiple steroid courses in a year. So these are the people that are most likely to have drug-induced Cushing's. The other thing to say about that, I guess, is that people all over the country, all over the world, take steroids for so many different reasons. And that's another thing which our listeners are going to need to be conscious of is knowing possible conditions where steroids is a therapy, having to take that on board and, and maybe do a bit of night move thinking to, to process that as well. My thought would probably be that it is probably going to be too simple in paces to say this is someone with Cushing's who's been taking too much steroid, unless it's uh, a particularly 
atypical mechanism. I don't think you're going to have someone with COPD who's had courses of prednisolone who suddenly got a, a Cushingoid appearance. My feeling is that for patients that may be too straightforward. And so what they may do is find patients who have signs of Cushing's, but then give them a, a cover story, so to speak. And those cover stories are most likely to be suggestive of endogenous Cushing's. So maybe, Sajini, could you talk us through endogenous Cushing's and the differences between uh, that and the exogenous? So endogenous Cushing's is um, something that can be ACTH dependent or ACTH independent. So 80% of cases are ACTH, so pituitary dependent, and they are termed Cushing's disease. You can also have ACTH dependent ectopic secretion in neuroendocrine tumours. They're typically bronchial. They can be uh, pancreatic as well. They can also very rarely be ovarian as well. Um, With respect to ACTH independent Cushing's, these are caused by adrenal adenomas, adrenal carcinomas. Um, There are other rare causes as well, uh, which we study in endocrine, um, particularly when you work in a tertiary centre. Um, but they don't tend to come up in a PACES exam. Uh, with respect to what you said about the COPD, actually common things are common. So definitely don't rule that out. Um, if you see something that looks like Cushing syndrome, by all means say it. And you know, look for evidence that might support you, such as a blood pressure cough, blood pressure medication, finger pricks to indicate glucose testing, thin skin, so on and so forth. You know, As a clinician, you're looking at the whole picture, not just one condition. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And we will come on to our detailed examination of the patient a little bit later. But Well, listeners, that's it for now on our first half of our highlights of 2023. Keep your ears peeled on your podcast feed for the next highlights episode of 2023. Although before that, On Christmas Eve, there might well be a little present sitting in your podcast feed. So look out for that just before Christmas. I will be back, of course, in the new year with some really exciting episodes. We've got some fantastic guests lined up in the early part of 2023. We'll look forward to seeing you then. And I, as ever, have been Dr. Sam Williams. And I will look forward to seeing you next time on the Pre-Paces podcast.